passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. We'll try that again. There we go. Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Crosswinds Church. Uh, I would say the Spirit Lake campus, but uh, even though this is our Spirit Lake campus, this is actually our entire church. Uh, Plus or minus a couple others. So welcome. We are excited that you are here with us. My name is Jordan. I am the campus pastor of our Spencer campus, and we are just thrilled uh, to join you for worship this morning, uh, to join you for some good food afterwards, as well as I hear there's a dunk tank. Uh, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to dunking Pastor Kurt. Uh, I heard my name's on that list as well. I, I don't... I don't know about that, but, but we'll give it a shot. So uh, welcome. We are excited to, to gather for a time uh, of worship together. I want to start this morning with just a, a small question, and it might be something that you've, you've wondered, uh, one that you've, you've wrestled through, and that is this, why do we do this? Why is it that we gather together as one church? After all, if we're honest, it's a lot easier for us to not gather together. It's a lot easier for people in Spencer to not make the trip up to Spirit Lake. And when we have these in Spencer for the people in Spirit Lake to not make that trip down. And then you throw in people that live in Jackson or the surrounding area or Ayrshire or or Royal and the surrounding area. It just makes a lot more sense for us to not gather together. Then you throw in the complexities of having a joint worship team, uh, joint preaching with, you know, both Pastor Kurt and I have tendencies to go a little long, and you guys are a little nervous right now when you hear that both of us are preaching. It can be easier for us to just do our own thing. So why is it that we make it a commitment for us to gather together as one church to worship together, to fellowship together? This morning, we're going to look at a text that that describes, I think, five reasons for why not just why we meet together, but why we must continue to meet together. I think this is particularly important for us as we stand on the cusp of fall ministries. In Spencer, we've already started school. Spirit Lake is starting school later this week. Fall ministries like Awana and Crosswinds Kids and our youth are starting to gather within the next few weeks, both at our Spirit Lake campus and our, our Spencer campus. As we stand on the verge of the start of the fall ministry season, it's important for us to just pause. It's important for us to take a moment and reflect and remember why we do this. So to, so to do that, this morning we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a fascinating book. If you have a, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up and follow along. It's a fascinating book about the return of the exiles to the city of Jerusalem, and they have been commissioned to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it's a really, it's almost like a Braveheart-esque kind of story where there's danger surrounding them, and they're trying to build the walls without a lot of resources and with danger surrounding them and, and trying to get it done in a certain amount of time. And by God's grace, they accomplished it. And then we pick up in, in Nehemiah chapter 8, and we see in Nehemiah 8 that the whole church gathers together. The whole congregation of Israel gathers together to recommit themselves to God, to to spend some time in worship together. And that's what we're going to pick up on this morning. As I mentioned, five key truths for why we gather together. So let's go through these briefly. The first one is this. We gather together as a sign of community. Take a look at the first two verses of chapter 8. 
And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Why is it that we gather together? It's a sign of the community that we have. Notice what it says there at the very beginning of verse 1. It says, and all the people gathered as one man. This was a sign of commitment from the people of Israel to gather together. It was difficult for them to gather. It wasn't like they just walked down the block to the water gate for this fellowship and meeting. It wasn't like they just hopped in their car and took a left at the sheep gate and then they arrived for worship. They were traveling from dozens of miles all around, difficult journeys to make it to Jerusalem for this time of celebration, to this time of hearing God's word proclaimed. Why is it? Why is it that they do this? I think it's, it's because it is, first of all, it's a sign of their community, but it's also, uh, it's really a reminder of who they are as a community. It's a reminder of what God has called them to be as his children. It's a reminder of who they are, that they are God's and that they are no one else's. And I think this morning as we gather together, that's honestly pretty similar to why we gather together as well. It's a sign, yes, that we are a church that meets in multiple locations, but even more than that, it's a sign of who we are as God's children. We gather together as a sign of the community that we have. Second thing we see is this. We gather together to expose ourselves to the word of God. Take a look at verses 3 through 5 and bear with me as I butcher some of these names that are coming up. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkajiah, Hashem, and this is a fun one, Hashbadanah. I think I just ruined that one. Uh, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. As I mentioned, we are right on the verge of starting our fall ministries. And we gather together to expose ourselves to the very words of God. And, and you might be saying, well, Jordan, that's something that we do every single week in Spirit Lake and in Spencer. And that's very true. But there's something special about gathering together to expose ourselves to the words of God, to remind ourselves of who we are as a church. We are a church that has always been committed to the word of God, and we always will be a church that is committed to the word of God. And so when we gather in times like this, we gather to expose ourselves to the word of God. But not only do we expose ourselves to the word of God, another reason why we gather is to respond to God in worship. Take a look at verse 6. It says this, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
we gather to get together today to respond in worship. And again, that's something we do every single Sunday. We do that in Spencer. We do that here in Spirit Lake. But today is a day for us to join our voices across campuses to sing the praises to God. And I know that, that singing to God with large groups of people can, can be emotionally uplifting. I understand that. But even more than that, I think that gathering together and hearing voices from other locations praising God is a reminder to us of the incredible power of the gospel. It is a reminder to us as we listen to other people sing that God is at work, not just in our church, not just in our small location, but he's at work in Spencer. He's at work in Jackson. He's at work in Royal. He's at work in so many other places. As we sing together, it is a tangible sign to us of God being at work. And we respond to him with worship. In just a few moments, we're actually going to have uh, Holly Hasman come up and share a little bit about how God has been at work in her through the past year doing music ministry with CTI. If you don't know, Holly has come on staff with us here at Crosswinds to provide direction for our worship teams, both in Spirit Lake as well as in Spencer. We're excited to hear about how she is feeling God calling her to uh, guide and direct the, the worship of us here at Crosswinds as we seek to become even more passionate worshipers of our God. So the third reason why we gather together is to respond in worship. The fourth one is to eat and to feast. And and some of you are like, all right, I'm I'm tracking with that one. Uh, Let's take a look at verses nine through 12. It says this, and Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The Bible is clear to us. Food is a gift from God to us. And it's a gift from God to us to actually point us back to him. As we are having our appetites satisfied and we enjoy good food and fellowship. And today is a day for that as we gather for food afterwards. But a feast isn't just about eating. It's also about fellowship. It's also about fun. And so we're going to do a lot of that as well after our time here in worship. It's a reminder to us that we are united in Christ as one church. And the final thing that we see from this passage, again, from these three verses, uh, Jeremy, you want to just go ahead and throw that up on the screen. I'm not going to read it again, but it's this. We gather as one church to celebrate and to rejoice. Friends, God has been so good to us as a church. He's been good to us up here in the Spirit Lake campus. He's been good to us in the Spencer campus. God has been good to our church. And today is a chance for us to rejoice and to celebrate about the ways that he has been good to us. If you notice how the Israelites first respond in this passage is they respond with weeping, with grieving over their sin. And there's certainly a place for that. There is a place for us to weep over our sin. But today, I would argue, is not that day. Instead, today is a day to celebrate the great grace that God has for us in spite of our sin. As we celebrate alongside one another, 
celebrating God's goodness to us as a church and God's goodness to us as individuals. Friends, we gather together today as one church. We are united in Christ as one church, committed to reaching our region for the glory of God and the fame of his name. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the incredible vision that you have given us, the great, the great calling that is for us, your church. And God, we pray that you would help us to live that out. God, as we gather together today, we pray that you would help us to celebrate, help us to love one another and to love you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pastor Jordan had a chance to talk about, through Nehemiah, why we gather. And we gather for a time to have a sense of community. And it's so good to be able to see people from the other campus and to be together and to have your sense of extended family. We gather to look at the Word and we gather for worship and we gather to rejoice. And my job is to continue to work our way through the book of Nehemiah. And as we continue to work our way through the book of Nehemiah, we discover three things. That as we gather together, we are to remember God's faithfulness in the past, confess our unfaithfulness in the past, and then recommit ourselves to God for the future. Let me say that again. We're to remember God's faithfulness to us in the past. We're to confess our unfaithfulness to him. And then we're, re, we're to recommit ourselves to faithfulness for the future. So if you want to follow along, go ahead and take your Bibles out. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to pick up in verse 6. And by the way, I'll just get this out of the way. This morning, I am longer than Jordan. Okay? And it's because the way it divided up, I ended up with like a chapter and a half, and he had 12 verses. So it's not fair, you know, but I'll just tell you right up front. But I have to tell you, I love these verses. Rich good stuff. Let's go ahead and look in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we remember God's incredible faithfulness in the past. The Levites begin saying this to the people. Here's their little sermon. It says, you are the Lord, you alone. If you're circling anything in your Bible, circle that. You alone. There is one God out there, not a multiple choice, one. And you have made the heaven And the heaven of heavens, for you are their host. And the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. They say, remember remember God's ID. There is only one God out there, and he made the entire heaven. He made the universe, and he made heaven itself where he dwells. And he made everything, the angelic beings, he made all the earthly beings, everything that's on the ground, everything that's in the ocean. He made it all. And he preserves everything day by day. He cares for things. Remember, this is the God we worship. This is the God we know. There is only one God and he loves us. And it continues. And you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you 
and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And I wish he had also given him the termite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Remember, remember how God reached down and he chose Abraham? And he said, I'm going to give you a promised land. And I'm going to give you descendants. And Abraham was like, okay, uh, when's this promised land thing happening? When's the descendant thing happening? It's uh, not working. Sarah and I have been trying for a long time. And nothing's happening. In fact, it goes to the point where the scripture says, they're like, their bodies were as good as dead. And it's in those points where all hopes seem lost that God is faithful. Remember, God is faithful. He keeps his promise. And Isaac was conceived. And God worked all the way through to keep his promise, to raise a people and to give them the promised land. God is faithful. He keeps his promise. Amen? Amen. This is good news. And then they say, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. And you heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. They say, remember? Remember when it was hopeless for for our forefathers? They were in Egypt, and it wasn't like they were favorable anymore. In fact, the Pharaoh didn't like them. The Pharaoh made them work, literally work to death. And then they were taking their kids and having to they come home from a hard days of work, then throw their children in the Nile River to drown. I mean, that's a pretty hopeless situation. God, how are you going to be faithful? How are you going to keep your promise to give us a promised land? And what happens? This is all just a setup. This is a setup for God to show his mighty power and victory, taking one of the largest and most powerful nations in the ancient world, Egypt, and plague after plague, he slowly crumpled them like a piece of tinfoil in his hand. Blood, flies, gnats, frogs, hail, finally, the death of the firstborn. And it had totally changed around. The people of Egypt were like, please go, we'll give you stuff. Just leave. God made his name world famous. Remember, God is faithful. God kept his promise to his people, even when it looked hopeless. And isn't that true to us? God is faithful to us. He will keep his promise, even at times when it looks hopeless. Isn't that true? It continues. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuer into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. After they got out of Egypt, they're thinking things are going so well, they get up right to the Red Sea, like a, a small problem, like how do we go through it? And they turn around behind them, and you know the story, Pharaoh's army is coming up behind them, and they're like, we're all going to die. This is like the end. God's, where are we going to go from here? And they're thinking God is going to forget about them, and God isn't going to keep his promise to the, for them. But you know the story. God split the sea. 
they walked across on dry ground. And when Pharaoh's army tried to do the same, whoosh, the water came back and they sunk like a rock. Remember, remember how God was faithful to their forefathers? And God continues to be faithful to us. And then it says, And by a pillar of cloud you led them in, that, in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. So after they cross the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness, everyone's like, oh, no. Did anybody bring a GPS? And like, nobody has one. Like, how are we going to get there? And God's like, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to take care of you. Massive glow stick. World's biggest glow stick. They follow it by night, cloud by day. And it continues. And you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Remember the situation. They're in the wilderness and they're really just a big crowd. They're sort of like a, a ragtag bunch of people who doesn't know what their government is. They don't know what laws are. They don't know what worship is. But God is faithful. God come down, comes down on Mount Sinai and literally gives them the law, gives them the rules. So it's not like they have to vote this out. God leads them. God guides them. God is incredibly faithful to them, even when things look hopeless. And it says, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their midst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Remember the time when their forefathers, even though God had been faithful to all these things, they're in the wilderness and they're like, you know what? I'm sort of hungry. My matzah ran out about 100 miles ago and I haven't seen a Big Mac. I haven't seen a Burger King. There's no McDonald's out here. We're hungry. We're going to starve to death. Where are you going to find this in the wilderness? God is faithful. Bread comes down from heaven every morning. Think about this. Enough bread to feed a nation. When they thought things were hopeless, God had an answer, didn't he? And God provided for them. And God was faithful to them. And it wasn't just bread. Remember the time when they thought they were going to die of thirst? Like, where do we find water in the desert? Water for an entire nation. God brings water out of a rock. Now, you try that. If you're, I don't care if you're, you're Houdini, you're Copperfield. You cannot bring water out of a rock. Only God can bring water out of a rock. The point of it is, when things look hopeless, is it hopeless in God's eyes? No. God will be faithful. Even when there is no humanly way possible, he will still continue to be faithful to us and he will make a way. Now, the point is, this is not just Israel's story. Isn't this our story? I think each one of us can say that like Abraham, God in his way has reached down into our life. God has softened our hearts and drawn us to him. And there's been times in our life where things looked hopeless. Times in our lives where we didn't know how we're going to go forward. And God has made a way, hasn't he? 
<laughs> God came to our rescue again and again. Remember God's faithfulness. When we gather, it's appropriate for us to look back and remember how faithful God has been to us. Because it's so easy to forget the past. I think about us. This is not just personally, but isn't this corporately? I think about seven years ago when we first began this whole story and I was here and we had a big massive debt of a quarter million dollars and a building and yet God was faithful. God's people gave above and beyond and the building was paid off. Then we had a roof problem and a basement leakage and all of a sudden God's people gave again and God was faithful and provided for that. And then we had this dream of being able to be multiple campuses and all of a sudden all these different technologies and then could we get Pastor Jordan and where would we go and would this church and this other campus make it? And here we are today. Isn't God faithful? Can I get an amen? Amen. God has been so, so incredibly faithful. He's been so good to us as a church. Now, let's continue. Because when we find God is faithful, the honest truth is that at least their forefathers were sort of faithless. But they and our forefathers acted presumptuously, and they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Well, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck. Wasn't that a graphic picture? (laughs) And they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Remember, when God's people rebelled in the desert, their forefathers rebelled. God had been so faithful to them. Take them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, water out of a rock, manna from heaven, supernatural things left and right. And what do they do? I want to go back to Egypt. I, I don't like what you're doing with this, God. And they rebelled. Now, if I was God, I would have squished them like a bug. Well, you guys probably would have done the same, right? After everything I've done for you, I've made you a nation. I saved you. Your kids were all dying in the Nile. But God is gracious and compassionate. And God was patient with them, even though they were rebellious. And once again, this is our story. Isn't it true that after God has saved us so many times, He's saved our lives again and again, and we rebel against Him? And he should, by rights, squish us like a bug. But he's gracious. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's forgiving to us. This just just makes worship exude from our heart. And it continues. And even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way by which they should go. And it says, remember when our people weren't just like totally like faithless, they were like super faithless? God was, or Moses was getting the Ten Commandments with God on top of Mount Sinai, and down below, the people rebelled. 
they did a built a golden calf, began worshiping it. Now, let me explain some details for you here. Number one, um, if you look at the commitment ceremony or how they handled the golden calf, it was the same commitment ceremony they made to the golden calf was the one that they had just done committing themselves to God. They had used God's commitment ceremony to commit themselves to a pagan idol. I mean, if you were God, would you be angry at him? <laughs> the golden calf, some scholars believe this was one of the gods in Egypt. So they, they want to go back to Egypt? Let's make the god of Egypt. Let's worship it. And not only that, but Aaron lied. If you leave the text, he's like, I just threw the gold in and it came out like this. Trust me, it doesn't happen that way. And interestingly, if you read the text, it says, and they rose up to play. Some Bible scholars point out in the Hebrew, this play is not like they did tiddlywinks. The inference in the Hebrew is they were involved in the sexual immoral worship styles of the Egyptians. So what do you have? You have on the top, Moses getting the Ten Commandments from God. Down below, you have the people have rebelled to such a point, they have just committed themselves to the golden calf, which is from the Egyptians, and they're sexually and morally worshiping it. And if you were God, that would be the final end. But did God give up on them? He was faithful to them. For 40 years, he continued to lead them. Has God given up on us? He's faithful to us, even when we're faithless to Him. Amen? Yeah. Good stuff. And it continues, And you gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. And they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Remember, for 40 years, they're wearing the same pair of sandals. Now, I can barely get one year out of a pair of Nikes. God supernaturally sustains their footwear because God is faithful, isn't he? He is so faithful to them that he gave them food every day and sustained their shoes all the way there the time they were gone. Nehemiah 9.22 says, And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. This is interesting. These officially were not kingdoms of the promised land. When they come in, God was so good to them, he gave them like bonus kingdoms on the way in. God is so faithful. He doesn't just give them the promised land, but he gave them more than the promised land in spite of their unfaithfulness. These are the things we have to remember. And then Nehemiah 9.23, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, which by the way, children, lots of children are a blessing. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of the houses 
full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Isn't God faithful? After all of their unfaithfulness to him, he brings them into the promised land and he gives them cities with water systems already in place. Trees, fruit trees already in bloom. Just go ahead and go pick it. Everything is ready for them. God is so faithful, so good, and so kind in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. All they did had to do was get fat. What a picture of God's goodness to them. And also, many times that's the picture of God's goodness to us. He gives us more than we ever deserved. True? Gives us so much more. Now here's a long section. I call this the yo-yo section. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, God gave them into the land of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of the enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil before you again. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. But they sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Isn't that the story of life? God has been so good to us. We delight in Him and then we drift away. God, out of His love, sometimes disciplines us. He disciplines us. We repent and we come back to Him and His arms are open. He's willing to take us back and He loves us. His love has never changed. He's been faithful. And then what happens again? We drift away. And God brings discipline and we come back and He opens His arms God is incredibly gracious and incredibly merciful. And this wasn't just the story of this yo-yoing back and forth, the story of ancient Israel, but it's our story as well. God is incredibly faithful to us, even when we've been unfaithful to Him. Now, I don't know what has been going through your mind as we've been looking at this theme of remembering God's faithfulness and thinking about our unfaithfulness. But I know if you're like me, you can think of all kinds of things in your life where God has been gracious and kind and loving. What I want to do is I want to just pause the service for just, just a minute. I want to give you a chance 
for a moment of silent prayer. I want you to take that time to thank God for His incredible faithfulness to you and confess your own unfaithfulness to Him. And know that His arms are open. He loves you and is ready to take you back. You ready for a moment of silence? Let's go ahead. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your incredible faithfulness to us. Faithfulness to your people. And we just confess our unfaithfulness to you. And now we move forward. And we want to recommit ourselves to you this year. Amen. As the text continues, we're not ready yet, guys. I told you I was going to be longer. As the text continues, um, what we find is that God's people take this point and they recommit themselves to faithfulness. Um, could you guys bring the lights up a little bit? I want you to pull this out of your bulletin. What Pastor Jordan and I did as we looked through this, we saw that there were um, five ways that they recommitted themselves from this time of corporate gathering to move forward in recommitment to Jesus Christ or recommitment to God. And I want to read this because it's a, they make a recommitment to living a holy life in an unholy world. Nehemiah 10, 28 through 29 just overviews it. It says, The rest of the peoples, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. This is like a family business deal. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. There are five things. I've got it on that card. What we're going to do is I'm going to read the five commitments they make as they move forward. And Pastor Jordan and I are challenging you to make the same commitments. This ministry renewal time, commitments as you move into this ministry year to refresh and renew yourself and recommit yourself in faithfulness to God. Here they are. Number one, they commit to only dating and marrying someone that loves Jesus. That's what it says. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land. Or take their daughters for our sons. You read Ezra. You read Nehemiah. You find there was a lot of intermarriage between the Jews and the people of the land. And Ezra is pretty strong about it. He's like, no, don't go there, guys. You date and you marry somebody who is of the Lord. Now, guys... Think about this. Let me talk to you, single guys. You may see a girl who 
looks good and you have great relational chemistry with, but if she does not know Jesus and you marry her, what will happen is she will not raise your children to love Jesus. Solomon, the smartest guy that walks the planet, finds his heart drawn away after foreign gods because of why? He married foreign wives. It is incredibly important to marry somebody who loves Jesus more than they love you. This is extremely important. In fact, this was the first commitment that they made in their recommitment ceremony. Now, singles, I'm talking to you. Are you with me on this? Do you recommit yourself to only dating and marrying somebody who loves Jesus? If you recommit yourself to dating and marrying somebody who loves Jesus, this is what I want you to do. If I can get my note out. Take this and put your initials at the end of the line. Put your initials there if you're recommitting to that. The second commitment they make is commit to keeping a day of worship and rest. It says, if... If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. The cultures around them were a a seven-day-a-week work culture. And they committed that they would be a -a six-day-a-week work culture and that they would um, have a day of worship and a day of rest. Sort of like Chick-fil-A, you know? Now, some of you need to say, well, you know what? I probably do need to stop working seven days a week. And if you're going to recommit yourself to Christ to take a day of worship and rest and stop working seven days a week, put your initials at the end of that line. Others of you, it might be the other end. Instead of too much work, it's too much rest. Too much vacation time. If you will recommit yourself like they did to taking a time for corporate worship and rest, put your initials at the end of the line. Number three, and by the way, three and four by mistake, I switched them. Commit to making sure that your church can operate or your campus can operate. They said, we are also taking on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Here's the deal. In that day, the Persians at first were funding the general operations of the temple. Now, either that had come to an end, or the temple service had grown to such a point they did not have enough money. And so here's what they did. They made a commitment that everybody would provide a little something to make sure the temple could operate. A third of a shekel. Not much cash, right? But everybody participated. How do we apply this to us? Well, I don't think we need to make sure we're each giving a third of a shekel. But there's something that's more precious than money. It's called time. The commitment that we're asking you to make on both campuses as we start this ministry year is that everyone does a little something to make sure their campus can operate. 
oftentimes what happens is some people do nothing and some people are overworked. But everybody should do a little something. There's setup and teardown in Spencer. There is the coffee grounds or the gathering grounds. There is ushers. There is greeters. There are um, people that help in Awana. If everybody does a little something, what happens? The church works. Will you commit yourself this year to making sure that you are doing a little something in serving others in your campus? If you will, will you put your initials at the end of that line? Number four, commit to giving God what is first and what is best. They committed here. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of our Lord and also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests and to the chambers of our house of our God. They made a commitment that they were going to give God what is first and what is best in their life, not what is last and what is worst. If you look at the, some of the surrounding books like Malachi, you find that they were giving offerings that were like the lame and the blind sheep. They couldn't sell anyplace else. Well, we'll give that to church. You know, certainly we can use it there. That's not worship. When I was uh, a young pastor, I remember I had this one phone call. And after 20 years of ministry, you get a lot of these strange phone calls that add up. I had one couple call me once and they said, hey, we just bought a new couch because the old one, we want to get rid of it. And we were, before we called the dumpster service, we wondered if the church wanted it. And you know what went through my mind? Sure, we'll take the new couch. <laughs> now, I have to tell you, I did restrain my, my lips. But it went through my mind. Because what it was, was saying, we're going to give you what is last and what is worst. Instead of what is first and what is best. We are asking you, as you recommit yourself to Christ this year, to recommit yourself to giving what is first and what is best in your life. Let me explain to you what that means. When you get your paycheck, what is the first check that you write? Your offering check. Does that mean that sometimes it's really tight at the end of the month? Yes, but you live in faith. You're giving God what is first and what is best. When it comes to serving in church, there's two ways you can look at it. And I've seen this happen. People say, well, wait a minute. I'll tell you when I can serve. I have to put my vacation schedule in first, and then I'll just sprinkle in a little service here and there. I'm like, wait a minute. Let's flip it around. Commit to serving God first and sprinkle your vacation schedule in afterwards. Because I want to give what God what is first and what is best in my life. One of, these, one of the times when I was younger... I realized I used to stay up really late on Saturday. And then you know what would happen when the preacher talked on Sunday? I was the guy sleeping in the back row. And God convicted me of that one time when I was younger because I was giving my worship my last effort, my worst effort. Go to bed early on Saturday night and give your worship your first effort and your best effort because God deserves it. Another way, Bible study. 
When do you study God's Word? 11 o'clock at night after you've just watched a full-length feature movie and you have absolutely no energy and you get three sentences in and you fall asleep? Or is your Bible study the first thing in the morning when you're fresh and when you're best? God deserves what is first and what is best. And if you commit this year to giving God what is first and best in your life, will you put your initials at the end of that line? Last one. Commit to giving my tithe and special offerings. And here's what they said. And to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. We're going to bring our offering. We're going to be faithful in bringing our tithe. Crosswinds Church, will you commit yourself to financial faithfulness this year? To giving what is first and what is best? Those are the five commitments that they made. And those are the five commitments we're challenging you to make as we renew our covenant and recommit ourselves to Christ this year. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.